A cute-looking boarding home located in Sacramento, California, was praised for taking in the least desirables in society and providing the care and structure they needed to rebuild their life. It was run by one sweet old lady. Or that's what everyone thought. Until the discovery of a corpse or two in her backyard. Killing. Missing. Hidden. A podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden. I'm your annoyingly perky host, Brad, former criminal defense trial attorney of legendary status, at least within my own family. I hope you are ready for another episode about some really bad things. This week, I admit, I bit off a little bit more than I can chew. Our story is on Dorothy Gray Puente, and it's complicated. Or I've made it complicated. It was fascinating to me, so I dug deep and kind of kept digging. And ended up with the longest set of notes we've ever had for an episode. By a pretty significant margin. It's not my fault, of course. I mean, nothing ever is. I blame author Ryan Green for putting together such a compelling tale of Dorothy's life and crimes. His book on this case is entitled Buried Beneath the Boarding House. Something like 90% of my notes come from his fantastic book. So this feels like I'm giving more of a book report than anything. But, you know, Mr. Green did such a good job on his research. Why why would I not just stand on his shoulders and, and then just add on what I could find? All right. So, like I said, this is going to be a long one. I was going to split it up into multiple episodes, but I polled the people who follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and the overwhelming opinion was, no, we want it all in one episode. So, here you go. I'm just going to let you decide how much of me you can take each day. So, Godspeed as you take this journey with me. Dorothy Helen Gray was born on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California. Her parents, Trudy May and Jesse James, awesome names, were former orange pickers and packers, but they both lost their jobs because they couldn't help but to show up to work drunk just a few times too many. Trudy's alcoholism was such that she could never find another job because she was either drunk or sleeping off for alcohol, or just plain hungover. Now, Jesse did find another job. He uh, was a cotton-picking sharecropper, but he didn't always make it to work. And since he was paid by the day, that meant the days he didn't show up, he didn't get paid. Now, the days he did show up, he would get paid, and somehow he just always ended up in one of the local bars. And this was in the final days of normality before the Great Dust Bowl decimated this area in the 1930s. So life in the Gray household didn't really improve with time. Now, Dorothy was the sixth of seven children. Trudy never stopped drinking during her pregnancy with Dorothy or while breastfeeding. 
Dorothy. And Dorothy always blamed this for her short stature. Once she was weaned, then she was practically on her own for finding solid food. Her older siblings taught her how to forge for food by asking for neighbors and strangers. And, you know, Dorothy was a very pretty girl, even from birth. So her siblings decided that she would best be used as kind of the face, the prop for the group to ask for food. So they'd go to a neighbor's house, make Dorothy ring the bell or knock on the door and ask for food. Sometimes she got food. Sometimes, if the neighbors were just particularly angry or mean or drunk, they'd take a swing at her as a toddler. And she hadn't really developed her dexterity to be able to dodge those swats to the head. Now, eventually, Trudy got wind of what her kids were up to, and she reacted in the exact same manner, trying to take a swing at all her kids, but she was only able to catch Dorothy because at the time she was the slowest. Trudy was angry because this embarrassed her. Not enough to get food, of course, but still, she was angry and she had to let the kids know, you know, don't go looking for food. But, you know, besides this, Trudy largely ignored her children. She focused most of her mental resources on puzzling out how to secure more alcohol. Daddy Jesse wasn't much better, while Trudy seemed to have no opinion about her children. Jesse acted as though he actively hated them. His rare interactions with the kids were always, always violent. The kids regularly saw Jesse only when he was asleep or passed out from drinking. They all lived in a one-room house, so those few nights each month when Trudy and Jesse were both sober and awake enough to fool around, they would kick the kids out of the house at night and so the kids would use that time to go searching for more food only now instead of just knocking on neighbors doors they were walking the street at night with drunks and other dubious streetwalkers and again dorothy was used as a face and so she took the blunt of the abuse the group suffered of course nighttime was much much more dangerous for the crew uh, in fact, Dorothy claims that she was groped and sexually assaulted multiple times rather than just being slapped at. The community essentially taught the kids that, you know, if you ask for help, you're courting danger. And this lesson had a deep impact on Dorothy, which would kind of lay the foundation for the rest of our story. One of the few times... Dorothy and her siblings felt any kindness from the world is when her father was diagnosed with pneumonia. Local church members brought food and gave the family money, and this continued for a few months until Jesse finally died in 1937. But he was actually found to be suffering from tuberculosis, not pneumonia, which changed everything, because back then, Tuberculosis was considered very contagious and lethal. So when the community learned that it wasn't pneumonia, they kind of shunned the entire family and they were back to being a band of outcasts. Now to make ends meet, Trudy, 
figured she had to do some working. And she did so by taking on a series of boyfriends, as she called them. The children would not be kicked out of the home during her boyfriend's visits, which gave all of them a very graphic lesson on human sexuality at a very, very young age. When Trudy wasn't with a boyfriend, she was out at the local bars looking for a boyfriend. And again, of course, the children were just left to their own devices. Now, Dorothy and some of her siblings managed to get in on the good side with several members of the local Hispanic community. And they would invite Dorothy over to enjoy uh, dinner with them every night in exchange for doing menial chores, you know, washing the dishes afterwards or something along those lines. And this continued for about a year when Trudy's life came to a sudden and violent end. She was riding with a boyfriend on the back of his motorcycle when the back wheel was clipped by a vehicle and sent both Trudy and her boyfriend flying. Uh, Trudy, Trudy landed in a bad spot and died a rather gruesome manner. And when she was dead, you know, the state was aware that the kids now had no legal guardian. And so the state's child care system entered into their lives. The siblings were all split up, and Dorothy, who was only eight, was alone for the first time in her life. This didn't last very long, I guess fortunately, because Trudy's sister learned of the situation and took custody of the kids. So they moved to Fresno, where her aunt was living, and this was the first time Dorothy enjoyed kind of an opportunity to enjoy life. It was like a, they hit restart on everything that had happened, you know? Now, taking a cue from one of her older sisters, Dorothy began minimizing her parents' death. She did this so she could be more of a normal girl in school and in society. And it helped her mentally because she was able to put those deaths into the past and forget about that chapter of her life. But Dorothy didn't just play down her parents' death. She just changed her entire background. She told her peers that she was actually born in Mexico, that she was one of 18 children, and had moved to California only a few years back. She went so far, again at the age of eight, to learn Spanish just so she could support the sly. She also spent a lot of time in the Hispanic community to understand the culture better. Again, to support her lie, again, at the age of eight. But arguably, these were kind of the best years of Dorothy's life. She grew from a cute young girl into a budding teenage beauty. She was gaining confidence because of that, all the attention she got from boys. She, you know, had this stable environment to grow up in, and things were looking up until the state poked their head into the family. The authorities determined that Dorothy's aunt couldn't keep all the kids because there were too few bedrooms in the house for all the adopted children. So all the children were seized and just kind of shuffled and dealt to new families throughout the state. Dorothy didn't react very well to this new situation because when she was placed with foster families, she didn't understand the need for following their rules. 
you know, why did she need a curfew? Why did she have to come straight home from school? She had spent her whole life coming and going as she pleased, and she was fine. Why should that change? And, you know, the older she got and the prettier she got and the more the boys wanted to hang around her, kind of the more stubborn she became about following these rules. You know, she had so many boys wanting to take her out for a night on the town. Why would she not take advantage of this? And because of this, she kind of bounced from foster home to foster home as the foster parents ran out of patience with her defiance. When Dorothy reached the age of 16, she said, I'm done with this. She broke out on her own, ran away from her last family, and started her own life. So Dorothy fled to Olympia, Washington, just so she could better sell her life in Mexico story. During her prime teenage years, her soft skin, her blue eyes, her faint Mexican accent, it made her into this exotic and beautiful woman in many people's eyes. It being the middle of World War II by this point in time, Dorothy decided to put her looks to their best use. Prostitution. Well, that was the best use in her mind. She would meet soldiers traveling across the world and make them her boyfriend for a night, I guess. Uh, she quickly became so successful at this endeavor that she actually had to rent a second room out at the hotel she lived out of so she could set appointments closer together. She literally would bounce between two rooms all night, every night, making money from all these soldiers. Now, one fella, a young soldier named Fred McFall, took a particular interest in Dorothy. And after having booked several appointments over a few weeks, he sprung a surprise on her. He proposed marriage. And really, the timing couldn't be more perfect for Dorothy because she was starting to realize that demand was drying up as the war was coming to an end. There weren't as much soldiers passing through. So she decided to take Fred up on his offer, and the pair became married. Dorothy latched on to Fred's wallet almost as strongly as she did to him. She had developed very expensive tastes while running her personal attention business. And she expected that level of luxury to continue, though she wanted it funded solely by Fred. And you know, to Fred's credit, he did his best to accommodate Dorothy's wishes. Now, the couple, despite being engaged, didn't marry for several months because Fred insisted on having the ceremony in Nevada with his family. Dorothy didn't care. You know, as far as she was concerned, her family was in the past. Uh, during the ceremony and the reception, Dorothy kind of became a bit of a spectacle. She told the guests that Fred saved her life from the Bataan Death March. Just FYI, at the time that occurred, she was only 13 and living in California. The timelines of her moving from Mexico didn't jive with the savior story. But Fred's family kind of allowed her to take this flight of fancy. You know, she was drunk on new love and probably some champagne and maybe was feeling the pressure a little too hard to impress her new in-laws. 
Now, Dorothy and Fred both loved each other very much, but they didn't understand each other very well. See, because of her background, Dorothy really only knew how to show affection through sex. But Fred thought that this was like an indication that she was back in her old prostitute game because she always wanted to have sex. But as they kind of settled in together, Dorothy learned to show her affection through her cooking. Almost always Mexican dishes, again to support the lie, but also because she was quite good at cooking, it turns out. Now, a constant point of contention in their marriage was the fact that Dorothy didn't know how to perform any housekeeping. And, you know, in fairness to her, she was never taught how to clean a house, right? She grew up in this just thunderdome of a life. Uh, but, you know, Fred was very particular about how he wanted his home to look. So he took on the responsibility, but he would complain about having to do it. And then Dorothy, not knowing what else to do, she would try to deflect his criticisms by having sex with him. Eventually, she got pregnant, and it almost came as a relief to both Dorothy and Fred because she wouldn't have to continue making these sexual advances, and he wouldn't have to pretend to keep enjoying it. Now, Dorothy didn't really take to motherhood. She felt no bond for her daughter when she was born. So Dorothy essentially became as dismissive of her own child as Trudy was to her. And this just enraged Fred. For example, he it was common and it would just make him blow up when he'd come home from work to find his daughter in the same diaper he had put on her before he left for work. And of course, they fought and fought and fought about this, and eventually Dorothy got sick of it. So she made the unilateral decision to just dump the infant girl on her mother-in-law. As you might expect, this kind of drove a huge wedge between Fred and Dorothy. And the result of this was Dorothy felt pushed to start enjoying the bottle. Eventually, however, Dorothy attempted to straighten out her life. In all honesty, it appears that this was more from a desire to fill the hours of the day rather than actually wanting to improve her life. But whatever the reason, she finally learned how to keep the house clean. And Fred appreciated the efforts she was making. And he made an effort to try to rebuild their relationship from his end. Not surprisingly, most of this reconciliation took place in the bedroom, and the reconciliation led to a second pregnancy. Dorothy just couldn't stomach the idea of being a mother of two. When she went into labor one morning, Fred was gone, she was home alone. So she drove herself to the doctor without telling anyone and by anyone I mean Fred, gave birth, and then left the hospital without the child. She did not explain what occurred to anyone, including Fred. And you know, when Fred got home from work that day, he was mightily confused because he went from having a pregnant wife to a not-so-pregnant wife, and there was no new baby hanging around. When he asked her about it, Dorothy didn't try to spin it in any way. She just bluntly told him, I didn't want the baby, and I signed away our parental rights. Well, this freaked out Fred, 
as it would most people. And he rushed to the hospital to try to save the second child. While it was gone, Dorothy said, you know, this is probably a good time for me to exit. So she packed up her things, found all the cash she could, of course, and left. She headed over to Los Angeles, where once she arrived, she told anybody who would pay her any amount of attention that she was there on her own because her war hero of a husband had just passed away from a heart attack. So here we are in 1948, Dorothy alone in Los Angeles, and she's got no prospects. She attempted to restart her prostitution game, but honestly, the setting was not as friendly as it was in Washington during World War II. Plus, her looks were not as eye-catching as they were once before, even though she was only 19. She actually had a very difficult time attracting the attention of any man. When she did obtain a new client, she couldn't charge what she did before. So she wasn't making enough money to make ends meet, so she turned to crime. Essentially, that meant as her Johns were recovering from their time together, she was just kind of shameless about stealing wallets and checkbooks. And of course, this racket didn't last very long before she was in handcuffs. When she went to court, she ended up being sentenced to one year in jail. And she quickly became an outcast inmate. And it was because she didn't keep her cell in any sort of decent condition. So all the other inmates considered her to be nothing more than this trashy pig. It didn't help that Dorothy absolutely could not hide her contempt for these other women. But the suddenness with which she became an outcast kind of jolted her into reevaluating her situation. So soon, Dorothy made it her goal to have the cleanest cell in the jail. And then she started befriending the other inmates and kind of became their students. She wanted to receive a crash course in crime. She wanted to become a smarter, a sharper criminal. And she found lots of inmates that were willing to teach her lots of tricks of the trade. Dorothy, in particular, tried to seek out knowledge and wisdom from some of the more experienced prostitutes. And all of this led her to revamp her operation when she was released from prison. And like a phoenix rising from the ashes, Dorothy established a successful prostitution business when she was back in the free world. In fact, she even managed to snag several police officers as regular clients which helped ensure her safety from arrest. All was going swimmingly until the birds and the bees made another mess for her again. She got pregnant for a third time. This, of course, forced her out of work, and she had to return to more of a begging lifestyle. She looked for food and shelter from friends, from family, even some of her former foster families. When that third baby was born in 1950, she told the adoption agency she couldn't recall the father's name, only that he paid an extra dollar to have sex with her without a condom. The entire experience shook Dorothy's world again. She really did not like the fact that she had just spent months relying on the kindness of strangers and found that she had no control of her life while this was going on. 
And so she said, you know what? Never again. Never again. She went on the prowl instead for a new husband and a new way to secure her future. At this point, Dorothy was a little bit older and a little bit fluffier. She she did enjoy eating. So it took Dorothy about two years to snag the right man. This time, it was a fellow by the name of Axel Johansson, a seaman who was looking to start a family in San Francisco. Axel was perfect for Dorothy because he kind of had to trust her with everything since his work would take him out to sea for days at a time. He also was willing to accept everything Dorothy said at face value and kind of lapped up the lies she told about her past. It really didn't take long for him to become totally smitten by Dorothy and he eventually proposed to her. Now, she should have been in heaven, right? She's got the steady stream of income coming in from her husband's work. He was gone for weeks at a time, but she just found she couldn't sit still. So she turned back to drinking and took to drinking so badly that one day when Axel returned home from a voyage at sea, he found the house just in a total wreck. And Dorothy passed out midday on their bed. Now, Axel had an old-fashioned attitude towards marriage and the roles of husband and wife. So he felt like the best solution to motivate Dorothy through her problems involved, you know, bruises and beatings. And this just caused Dorothy to change her habits. And she went back to playing the perfect little housewife for Axel. But Dorothy couldn't get out of her own way. While she continued to clean house and prepare a homemade meal for Axel every night, her attempts to impress him with her premarital days no longer interested him. Dorothy picked up on this and decided to go bigger with her lies. She claimed to be a former member of the Rockettes. She said she was buddies with Jackie Kennedy. And her lies began tripping over each other such that Axel was kind of disgusted by him and he started to grow distant. So with him growing distant and his journeys out at sea, taking him away from the house for a spell, Dorothy looked for the attention of other men, many of which she brought back to their home. Now, Axel wasn't stupid. He sensed what was going on. Dorothy continued to abandon housework while he was away, so Axel subjected her to more and more savage beatings as time went on. And this was kind of consistent with the general mentality of the 1950s, so Dorothy never blamed Axel for the abuse, you know? In her mind, it was her fault, and her husband was just trying to fix a problem. Some of her friends even claimed that Dorothy seemed to thrive based off of Axel's abusive personality, but I never figured out what that meant. Um, You know, during this time, Dorothy, out of nowhere, really, took up an interest in holistic medicine. Now, how much she bought into it is unclear, but there is no denying that she was interested in it because she had many books on the subject, and she started keeping a pantry full of herbs and other natural remedies. She actually got 
pretty good at this. And people in the neighborhood started coming down to consult her when they had a sick child or were just feeling run down. Axel, too, was pretty impressed by this. He thought it was really good for Dorothy to have friends and connections in the neighborhood and that, you know, they could be a positive influence on her to be a better wife. But, you know, he started to grow nervous as he noticed that she really started to dive deeper and deeper into this craft and address more serious ailments, such that she even started giving out prescription drugs she had managed to acquire, but she never would tell Axel how she got a hold of these drugs. Eventually, you know, they kind of had it out and Axel said, you got to tell me what's going on here. Dorothy suddenly had the story about attending medical school in Mexico. Well, this was the last straw for Axel. He just couldn't tolerate her exaggerations anymore. And he knew this had to, this one had to be just a flat-out lie, which he wouldn't abide. He would not be lied to. But rather than merely divorcing his wife, Axel had her committed to a psychiatric facility, specifically the San Francisco Marine Hospital. Therein, she was locked in the same ward with sailors who were dying from various illnesses, the criminally insane, and just kind of the regular members of the public who had experienced some sort of psychological break. The administration still had some very archaic approaches to dealing with the mentally ill, including surgical sterilization. Now, fortunately, Alex re- Axel refused to consent to having such a procedure performed on his wife. While she was there, the psychiatrist interviewed her and tested her and did everything they knew they could do to try to figure out what was wrong with Dorothy. But they couldn't reach a consensus. I mean, again, remember this is 1950s. Mental health is still very much in its infancy. So they kind of all threw their hands up and said, I guess she's schizophrenic based off of her storytelling and how much she really believed these lies she was telling. So they just assumed that she was living in this fantasy world. Now, as much as Dorothy had forgiven Axel for his past transgressions, she really couldn't forgive him for having her committed. When she was released... I mean, there was a massive, massive gulf between this husband and wife. In fact, as soon as Axel went back to work and was out at sea, Dorothy used that free time to flee the house. This time for Sacramento. By now, this story is near the 1960s, and it was an excellent time to be a prostitute. What with the counterculture thing rising and the summer of love soon coming to be. So Dorothy decided to set up a brothel. And it caught fire instantly. Like She just had to start hiring other prostitutes to come work at her brothel because she couldn't keep up with the demand. Now, she was picky about who could come work with her. And that upset a lot of, you know, the senior prostitutes in the area who weren't given a chance to work at this hot new brothel. So they ratted her out to the cops. And, you know, of course, an undercover cop came by, 
got proposition and arrested Dorothy. Now, this court was unaware of her previous criminal history, so she was sentenced to only 90 days for running her illegal brothel, which suggests there's a way to run a legal brothel, which I suspect there was not in Sacramento during this time. Dorothy kind of viewed this as a bit of a blessing as the nature of being in jail made it hard for her to get alcohol and those schizophrenic-like symptoms started to fade away. But this was Dorothy and her wild stories still continued. She was less outrageous and managed to keep track of how all her stories fit together, however. When her 90-day sentence ended, she was immediately rearrested for vagrancy and sentenced to another 90 days. Why? Because she didn't have a home address since her brothel was now gone. That's how the law worked back then. Dorothy was shocked that this happened. She called Axel for help. He kind of laughed at her. And, you know, she became furious that her quote-unquote husband wouldn't come get her out of jail after she had abandoned him. Again, Dorothy realizes she can't keep living such an erratic life. So she started relying on her medical knowledge that she had picked up during her holistic doctoring phase of her life. And when she got out of jail, she parlayed that into a job as a nurse's aide. Now, the pace sucked. The work was boring. But she saw the potential perks this job would provide. She began helping patients cook their food and sharing it with them. In other words, she would take their food, cook it into something better, and then split it with them, which meant she didn't have to buy food. She would often reclaim lost pills while straightening up patients' rooms, and she would occasionally slash regularly help herself to any liquor and cash she may find laying around. But, you know, Dorothy was so charming and so likable that many of the patients just trusted her implicitly, and they would ask her to go cash their social security or their disability checks at the bank for them. She would also be called upon to make withdrawals from their bank accounts. Now, naturally, Dorothy, being who she was, she used this opportunity to rob those patients blind. But she had finally developed some degree of criminal cunning. Those that were unusually confused or otherwise very vulnerable were the ones she stole from the most, while she was very careful about stealing from those with better mental health. Now, of course, her exaggerations did continue. Surrounded by a sea of the sick, Dorothy began telling stories about how she overcame breast cancer or was suffering from a brain tumor or was fighting liver cancer. Sometimes she would pretend to be suffering from multiple forms of cancer at once. Now, the medical staff, of course, knew immediately she was full of it. But they kind of viewed that as a small price to pay, given the quality of the work she performed. The more time she spent as a nurse's aide, the more daring she got in her thieving. She began using the pills she found to try to make patients more disoriented or just generally loopy, so they wouldn't realize that she was stealing. When a patient would object 
to taking a new pill that their doctor hadn't told them to take, she would say, no, okay, it must be a mistake. I get it. And then that night she would cook up one of her homemade Mexican dishes that had the new medication mashed up into it. Now, she lasted as a nurse's aide until 1966 when she started feeling the suspicions of some of her patients' family members. But there was no evidence ever obtained that tied Dorothy to any thefts or the drugging of patients. And so when she left, the concerns about her kind of left with her. The hospital didn't look into it any further. Now, Dorothy obviously is living a hard life, and it's catching up with her. Though she was barely in her 40s by this point in time, many people thought that she was in her late 50s or early 60s, just based on her appearance. I mean, she was very frail looking and had no ability to do any heavy lifting. She had really enjoyed taking care of the patients, and this kind of served as the impetus for her next scheme. She wanted to run a boarding house for the sick. So she used her savings and rented a large house. Because of her criminal history, Dorothy knew that she wouldn't be able to secure a boarding house license. She also decided that she would need the assistance of a strong young man because she couldn't do things like moving patients and, you know, any sort of the other heavy lifting that goes along with that. She tried kind of recruiting from the local homeless population, but that didn't work very well. You know, they, they proved to be a very unstable lot, very unreliable. Dorothy actually found the manpower she needed in a bit of a surprising way from the growing group of undocumented Hispanic immigrants that were in the area. Her years kind of weaving and braiding herself into that community was starting to pay off. So with this final piece of the puzzle in place, at least in Dorothy's mind, her dream came to fruition, and she opened up her totally not licensed boarding house in late 1966. Now, one of those Hispanic laborers she had recruited had eyes on Dorothy. Roberto Puente was a young Mexican immigrant who saw Dorothy as an older woman with lots of money and no man in her life. He aimed to change that for his benefit. He became whatever she wanted and needed. And soon he was the only laborer she trusted with some of the more sensitive tasks. And their relationship did start to grow beyond just business. In fact, in 1968, the pair traveled to Mexico to get married. Dorothy even took on Roberto's last name and kept it for the rest of her life. Now, Dorothy loved being in her alleged homeland. And Roberto was excited because now he didn't have to worry about his citizenship status anymore. He kind of endured a honeymoon phase with Dorothy before moving out of her apartment, claiming he couldn't sleep because all she did was snore all night. So he moved into one of the rooms she had available in the boarding house, so they were still together. But it wasn't long before he was seen out on the town with other senoritas. Though he was smart enough not to take any back to the boarding house. And, you know, Dorothy was aware of this, but she kind of didn't care. 
so long as he would make himself available to present a good face to the Hispanic community she so desperately wanted to stay in good graces with. Now, going back to the business, Dorothy's boarding house was almost instantly full and stayed that way. With two dozen rooms, Dorothy was busy, but she was instantly declared a hero by the local social workers. They didn't really give a dang about her house being unlicensed because she would do things like buy her residents new clothes. She did all their laundry. She, you know, they had homemade food to eat. And she just created this home with a very loving atmosphere. Yes, an occasional check for a resident may go missing. But with the homeless and the mentally ill who resided in Dorothy's house, people didn't think anything of it. I mean, these were the these were the part of the citizenry that were always moving, their addresses always changing. And they kind of lived with not always getting their checks. And with such a massive number of people needing services like this, social workers didn't pay it any mind and just praised Dorothy for all the wonderful things she was doing. Now, Dorothy, of course, always wanted to be the center of attention. So she decided to use her status as this boarding house owner to start to advocate for Hispanic rights. She put her money where her mouth was. She began attending these $50 plate charity dinners, made connections with the upper class of Sacramento society. She, and this is legit, this isn't just one of her stories, but she did kind of become a bit of an acquaintance with Ronald Reagan. And he proved to be a very useful source as far as connecting her with various other political leaders, including U.S. senators. And again, this is all real. This isn't another Dorothy yarn. This apparently all happened. Now, this political clout covered her in Teflon, and she rarely had any problems with the law again. She only ever had one investigation into a resident's check going missing, and she was able to convince the police that, you know, the bulk of her tenants had mental issues, they would get confused about when they did and did not receive their checks. And after that, she wasn't really hassled again. She also had developed this system where she would take the checks from her residents and cash them. And then would give them spending money and a limited amount every week. And she said she did this to limit their ability to binge on alcohol or to feed a drug addiction. She kept a ledger. It was a false one, but nonetheless, she had a ledger. And that was enough to satisfy police and social workers whenever questions came up. And frankly, they appreciated her approach to it because they felt like these efforts were going to keep her residents from getting into more trouble. With Roberto having kind of drifted away from the marriage, she was spending less and less time at the boarding house. So Dorothy had to start recruiting more reliable residents to help with maintenance issues. She had made peace with the state of her marriage and made no efforts to win Roberto back. When she discovered he had left, she acted like it was as if another tenant had just moved on in the middle of the night. She had all his belongings boxed up and placed in the storage. But, of course, she kept anything of value. Being newly single... Dorothy went right back on the scene. 
She reverted to her old tricks, finding now older single men at bars, getting invited back to their houses. Then she would drug them and steal all that she could. Problem was, a few of the men weren't as drugged as Dorothy thought, and they maintained enough awareness to see what she was up to. So they started contacting the police. In the course of hunting for new men, she stumbled across a fellow by the name of Pedro Montalivo. She did her regular thing, but found that she kind of really enjoyed his company. So instead of drugging him and robbing him, she brought him to her house and gave him a room. And soon he moved into Dorothy's room. And the pair got married in a small ceremony. But Dorothy was smart. She never filed the marriage paperwork or introduced Pedro to any of her high society friends because she had never divorced Roberto. He just left. Well, it turns out Pedro didn't really end up being as good a catch as she thought. He was exceptionally violent and would beat her anytime she did not obey his commands without question. And he didn't stick around very long. After about 60 days, Dorothy couldn't find Pedro. So Dorothy, again, trying to learn from the hard knocks of life, began focusing more on her residence. And she found she actually enjoyed their company. And they really took to her showering them with attention. And so Dorothy said, you know what? I don't need another man. She had her own little congregation there of worshipers who would give her all the attention she desired. Dorothy would provide for their needs, manage their money, heal them when they got sick. And, you know, at times, especially for the younger tenants, she would serve as a bit of a mother figure. The stories she told um, of the hell she had been through growing up really resonated with her tenants. And she proved to be kind of a source of inspiration that, you know, if I've been through all this, y'all can certainly recover and have beautiful lives. And even though Dorothy had given up on men, she still kind of trolled the bars most nights. But her MO changed. Instead of looking to drug and rob her marks, she started relying on her prison skills. She merely sought to get to know these men. And when she found one that was living on a pension or some sort of government subsidy, she would collect enough information about them to allow her to have the check rerouted to her boarding home. And, you know, since this was kind of the standard operating procedure she had for her tenants, she already had a perfect cover in place. You know, what was one more check coming to her house when she already had dozens arriving every month anyway? And she was doing all right for herself, such that she stumbled into a pretty cool investment opportunity. She sort of befriended a struggling catering company owner by the name of Ruth Monroe. And when Dorothy learned that Ruth's company was faltering and about to go under because her husband's health wasn't failing, Dorothy agreed to become an investor and for a spell worked directly with Ruth. And in exchange, Ruth agreed to offer meals at a steep discount to the homeless. So Dorothy meets this friend 
invests money in her company and gets to say, I saved this company. And oh yeah, now this company provides meals to the homeless. Now Ruth's husband's health just continued to get worse and worse and worse. Ruth was, despite Dorothy's help in supporting the business, it just wasn't enough to keep up with all the bills she was dealing with. So Ruth made the decision to sell her house and it was at a massive loss, but she needed the money just to keep her hospital, her husband in the hospital and alive. When she made this decision, Dorothy insisted Ruth come live with her, not in the boarding house, but in Dorothy's private apartment. They would share it. So Ruth moved in during the spring of 1982. And she was kind of shocked at the way she was treated. Dorothy acted as if Ruth was royalty. She waited on Ruth hand and foot. Um, Ruth, you know, truly, truly appreciated all the comfort and care she provided. Because, of course, as you can imagine, she was just mentally and emotionally worn out from worrying about her husband and her finances. And, in fact, it was starting to take a toll on her health. You know, she was feeling under the weather. So Dorothy jumped on this problem immediately, too. And Ruth improved. She started feeling better. The only real side effect was she was extremely sluggish in the mornings. And she started to develop some anxiety issues. But Dorothy said, look, that's easy enough to fix. All you need is a nice cocktail. Now, Ruth wasn't a drinker, really. But she took Dorothy's advice because she had been so sweet to her. And she had done so much for her. Why would she not trust this woman? And the cocktails worked. It helped. Her anxiety started going away. Now, a few weeks after Ruth had moved in with Dorothy, Ruth's son came to visit her. And he was really shocked to see his mom this way. She was drunk most of the visit. She was often too weak to stand. But Ruth refused to go to the hospital. She told her son, look, I'm in really good hands here with Dorothy. I'm staying here. She used to be a nurse. She's done nothing but take good care of me. Let's drop the subject, okay? So Ruth's son did. And you know, if her mom believes so much in Dorothy, why shouldn't he? Yet Ruth died a few months later in April of 1982. You know, she called the police and the paramedics and all that. And the police used this opportunity to do an informal search of Dorothy's apartment. See, the police had been watching Dorothy very closely. And they were very suspicious over the number of checks her address was receiving. Of course, Dorothy had the perfect answer for the police's suspicions. And when they started questioning her about Ruth, she had a perfect answer for that. Ruth was depressed over her husband's condition. She had been drinking more. She had started mixing her drugs with the alcohol. Dorothy told her to be careful about that. But Ruth didn't listen, and she ended up dying from it. And the physical evidence the police found tended to match Dorothy's story. So the police kind of grudgingly reached this conclusion that Ruth's death was, you know, an accident, maybe a suicide, but we'll call it an accident. And, you know, this gave Dorothy another sob story to add to her many, many, many tales that she could share. 
So with Ruth's death, her son began insisting that Dorothy must be behind it. And about this time, Dorothy's friends in the police department started going silent one by one. Her greatest supporters, though, who would still talk to her said, look, I can't give you any details, but you need to start looking at criminal defense attorneys. But Dorothy had a plan, and she just happened to have enough cash to pull it off. Unfortunately, as they say, humans plan, and God laughs. Dorothy was arrested on the way to her, the airport to fulfill her plan. See, she was going to move to Mexico City and start a life there, maybe build a boarding house like the one she had in Sacramento, and it was all going to be financed by Ruth's savings. Instead, though, she ended up in the Sacramento County Jail. Now, unlike most of us, jail didn't bother Dorothy at this point. You know, she was kind of comfortable in jail. She ultimately was sentenced to serve five years in prison for her shenanigans, largely because of her grandma's look and the good she had done in her community and her ties to influential politicians. Based on the number of charges that were filed against her, which were just a ton of fraud and robbery charges, she really should have faced life in prison. But the judge gave her the benefit of the doubt. And all cases, except for three of the robberies, because there was just no doubt she was the person who was guilty of them. So, sentenced to five years, then she would be put on probation after that. But one thing the judge did that really became a burr in Dorothy's saddle was a condition of her probation was she could no longer run boarding houses. Well, at this point in life, Dorothy just kind of accepted and adapted to whatever life threw away, you know? She walked into the prison and immediately assumed the role of elderly mentor to many of the younger women. She dropped the pretense of being innocent, and a lot of the young girls who were interested in following in her footsteps, she trained. She taught them how to be better criminals, just like she had been taught. She quickly became beloved by many of the inmates. And, you know, she could stroll through the prison with no quarrels with any of the gangs. She didn't get involved in any of the inter-jail politics. She was just kind of immune from all that because she was so beloved. Until she made one horrible, horrible decision while in jail. One that almost cost her her life. For some reason, she decided to tip off a guard as to who was behind a recent prison assault. And you know, prison's a bit of an odd place. No harm in gossiping, even about things one shouldn't know. However, even smiling at a guard can be considered a treasonous act. So when word got around that Dorothy was the one who narked on this assault, she was in trouble and trouble came in the form of her being cornered in the showers one day when she had the absolute mess beaten out of her. I mean, it's a miracle that she did not die from these beatings. She was brutalized. 
Dorothy spent a long time recovering from her injuries. But even when she was healthy enough to return to the general population, the heat had not died down at all. Rumors had it that there were multiple contracts out for her life. Such, and nobody was keeping this hidden even. The guards were aware of this. And so they decided it would be best to keep Dorothy in protective custody, which is essentially a fancy word for solitary confinement, until everything down died down. And this took so much longer than anyone expected. She spent about a year in protective custody before they felt comfortable releasing her back to the general population. Now, during this time when she was all alone, Dorothy became very, very lonely. So she decided to enroll in the prison pin, pin pal program. That's trickier to say than I thought. Prison pin pal program. This gave her an opportunity to spread all the lies she enjoyed telling in print to people who couldn't really question her. Now, she kind of developed a BFF among her pen pals, a fellow by the name of Everson Gilmouth. This dude was in his early 70s. He was widowed. He was lonely. He was a good person. But most importantly, he was very well off. Who is shocked? By, you know, Raise your hands here. Who's shocked that Dorothy picked him as her best friend, right? When she was released from prison, guess who was there to pick her up? Get all over it. Now, since Dorothy could no longer legally run a boarding house, Everett took up the burden, at least in name. His pension financed her new boarding house until they could secure formal funding. Though the upper tiers of society had abandoned Dorothy, the social workers, the substance abuse counselors, and the people of the Hispanic community had not. As soon as she had found a house, and as soon as it was open, tenants just rushed in. And this really infused her with confidence, and it gave her a new little uh, tale to tell. She was a martyr here. She had been taken advantage of by an unfair and uncaring legal system that punished those who really tried to do the best for their communities. And boy, did her supporters lap this up. Now, at this point, I'll mention Dorothy was already in the process of making plans on how to get rid of Everett, but still make sure his pension kept flowing into her bank account. But you, you probably knew that, at least on some level. So with this new boarding house, Dorothy changed the rules a bit particularly regarding the types of tenants she would accept. Only those who were truly the worst of the worst, the ones that no other boarding house or substance abuse rehabilitation center would ever touch with a 10-foot-long stick, that's who she wanted. That's who she recruited. These were the ones guaranteed not to have any other place to go, either because... Their problems were so severe they were considered untreatable or they had such a scary criminal record nobody wanted to take a chance on her. And this further fueled the story that she was the victim in her criminal prosecution because look at what she's doing. She's taking the people that nobody wants and she's helping them. And somehow, I don't get the logic here, that meant 
that, you know, the upper tiers of society couldn't stand this, and she had to be punished for it. So shortly after the um, board, this new boarding house gets up and running and everything's going great, wouldn't you know it, all Everett kicks the bucket. This is in 1985. He kind of died the same way Ruth did. And Dorothy knew how the world worked now. And she would be hammered again if she delivered the police another body especially one of a man who had been in such good health previously. And she knew that an autopsy would unquestionably give the police enough evidence to charge her with Everett's murder and probably cause them to look more closely at Ruth's death. So she did what any calm, rational person would do in this situation. She hid Everett's body. See, her time as a nurse's aide taught her a really valuable skill, and that was how to wrap up a body for delivery to the morgue. So what Dorothy did was she kind of wrapped Everett up in bed sheets, then wrapped him up in some plastic sheeting. But even then, the smell of death was pretty overpowering, so she had to wrap him in a second round of plastic sheeting. And this was enough to kind of contain the problem for the moment, but it was just a temporary solution. Luckily, our hero Dorothy had made several connections in the Hispanic underworld, the sort that would be willing to dispose of some trash in exchange for a cash payment and wouldn't be real interested in asking questions. So she hired several of them as handymen to do some remodeling to her boarding house. And she treated these workers very, very well. She paid them far above what their services were worth. One man, Ismael Flores, was just an outstanding carpenter. And he did he was hired to do some custom wood paneling around Dorothy's private apartment. And he did such a good job, she asked him to build a chest for her books and important papers. She was very specific about the dimensions of the chest. It needed to be at least six foot long and all this. And so he did. And Dorothy filled it up with her uh, books and other important papers and then nailed the lid shut so nothing would fall out while it moved. Now, Dorothy gave, in addition to overpaying Ismail for his work, she also gave him her boyfriend's truck because she said he ran off to Hollywood. He clearly doesn't want it. Let me just give it to you. And he said, oh, you're, you're far too generous. This isn't equitable, you know. And so she said, okay, well, do me one last favor and we'll call it even. Help me store everything that's in this big old chest. So Ismael recruited a friend and they lugged this big old heavy thing down to the truck. And Dorothy rode with them so she could give directions to the storage location. Well, suddenly, out of nowhere on the trip, Dorothy demanded they stop. She had reconsidered and felt like all the stuff that was in that trunk needed to be tossed. She didn't want to save it. She just had too many memories attached to it. It wasn't worth keeping. So they turned around and headed for the Garden Highway in Sutter County. And the road, this road 
followed a river. And this river was a well-known illegal dump site. So she said, let's just throw the chest down here. I don't ever want to see it again. So the two men struggled and groaned and got the chest out of the truck, got it on the slope of the embankment, and then kind of pushed it down into the river. It didn't have enough momentum to actually make it to the water. It got tangled up in a bunch of undergrowth and then stopped just shy of the banks. But it carried with it enough undergrowth that you really couldn't see it. It kind of was naturally camouflaged. And Dorothy just smiled at her look. And Ishmael thought he had done a good job. But he was confused because he was never called to do a job for Dorothy again. At least that's what he claimed when he was later arrested for his role in disposing of Everett. Now, Dorothy made it appear as if Everett was still alive, at least on paper. She had become an expert at manipulating the government's bureaucracy. She had also managed to become an expert at forging Everett's signature. She even had the gall to write to Everett's children and kind of built this story of going from just friendly letters to, oh, I've been feeling down to, oh, I don't feel good to, I don't know if I can get over this illness to, he did. Now, Everett's body was found a year later in 1986, but based on the way Dorothy had prepared it and the intense summer heat, the body had just putrefied in record time. I mean, it was totally unrecognizable to the police. He was listed as a John Doe and ended up being buried in a pauper's grave. Now, you know, police had no reason to suspect this was Everett because no missing persons report had ever been filed on Everett. So with her Everett problem solved, Dorothy focused full-time on building the boarding house of her dreams. She carefully selected who would be allowed in as a tenant, as we discussed earlier. It was always people who had problems she could exploit. She loved terminal alcoholics. They were by far the easiest to manipulate. She had developed this careful scheme where she would ensure their government benefits would be sent to her address. She would deposit them in her bank account as the tenants agreed to, and she would give them a weekly allowance. Dorothy went so far as to map out how far away each local bar was how long it would take to walk to each bar, how long it would take each resident to get drunk. And then when she gave them their allowance, she would send them on their way and figure out how long it would take for them to get there. So say it took one resident 20 minutes to get to a local bar. About 30 minutes after he left, she would call the police anonymously, claiming to be a patron at the bar and claim that this fellow was just causing a ruckus and somebody needed to do something about him. Inevitably, they'd show up, arrest the tenant, he'd be charged with disorderly conduct, and he'd have to spend 30 days in jail. This would allow Dorothy to then rent out that tenant's room to a new tenant and keep the cycle going. Now, of course, she would keep collecting the checks of the previous tenant. But this is how she really started to build up her little 
financial empire. Everyone who worked with Dorothy was aware of how she controlled her tenants' money. And, of course, they expected some failures, but it provided the perfect cover for Dorothy to keep working her scheme. I mean, many social workers were shocked that she could keep so many of her tenants. Again, the tenants she hand-selected, the tenants that were the worst of the worst in the area. They were just impressed that she could keep them out of trouble for so long. And before you could bat an eye, she was making five grand a month, which in today's money would be around $12,000 a month. All off of these government checks not meant for her, plus whatever amount Everett's pension continued paying to her because even though Everett's children thought he was dead, the pension didn't know. Plus whatever she could earn from selling her former tenant's property. And, you know, this constant turnover rate also never raised any red flags. Again, focused on helping the worst, any success at all was deemed a miracle, and she had made sure to learn from her past mistakes. That meant very few tenants were allowed to stay for long. She didn't want them learning her patterns. Now, a few were allowed to treat her home as a pseudo-retirement house, but only if they had a pre-existing medical condition and plenty of prescriptions, particularly ones that didn't mix well with alcohol or might be easy to overdose on. For example, a tenant by the name of Dorothy Miller had serious night terrors and had to take a considerable amount of sleeping pills each night. Plus, she was an alcoholic, so... No one was really shocked when she overdosed, became ill, and died from mixing her pills with her alcohol. Benjamin Fink was another tenant who was also alcoholic. Now, he was very devoted to his recovery, but he was also extremely solitary by nature. And he had suffered a lot of lung damage from multiple bouts of tuberculosis. He had fought off without the help of medicine while he was living on the streets. So when he became bedridden from lung problems, none of the other residents really found that shocking. Of course, it created the problem from Dorothy that she now had two bodies she needed to have disposed. She knew she couldn't follow the same routine she did with Everett. Police would eventually put together that all these Jane and John Doe's were one-time residents at her boarding house. She didn't want that connection. So she needed help, and she found the perfect little assistant in this huge Hispanic fella that was known only as the chief. The chief was just this hulking, terrifying-looking man. Literally, when he had tried to go to other rehab and psychiatric facilities, they would call the police rather than let him in the door. Now, of course, Dorothy saw him as an amazingly useful tool. He was a giant strong man who could handle himself in a fight. He was very intimidating. And best of all, at least to Dorothy, best of all, he hated the police and did everything he could to make sure he never had to deal with them. Whenever they did question him, 
he would stand silent or he would just chew them out. And he was intimidating enough that some police would just leave rather than fool with him. He worked like a dog for Dorothy and kind of became her right-hand man. He completed a remarkable number of projects and just never seemed to tire. I mean, he was the Energizer buddy in a giant scary man's uh, body. In fact, neighbors said it wasn't uncommon to see him, you know, like working on taking down trees or other landscaping projects like digging giant holes well after the sun went down. Despite her reputation generally as this kindly old woman, Dorothy never let children onto her property. And some of the neighbors claim that she would cuss like a sailor at children who's tried to trespass. It was, of course, because her old friends Dorothy and Benjamin were buried under the flower beds that Chief had dug. And, you know, Chief was doing all this body disposal in exchange for a little bit of extra money to get drunk each weekend. After all the flower beds were, I don't know, let's say rented out, Dorothy moved her operation and decided that her basement floor, which was dirt, really would look better if it was covered in concrete. So she had Chief remove a lot of the dirt to kind of level it off. Now, if you may have been paying attention, they may have noticed that Chief was removing a whole lot of dirt. Way more than you would need to level off a basement. But it is what it is. It wasn't long after the flower beds were full and the basement started to get full that neighbors started complaining to the city that something was wrong. There was this terrible odor that had to be coming from somewhere. It was a sickly sweet odor. It, it was so bad, some neighbors moved. And the others, like I said, complained to the city to, you know, you got to send someone out to check the sewer pipes or something because this, this is awful. There's also reports of like huge groups of flies that would hang around the area, particularly Dorothy's house. But by and large, the city didn't care and no investigation was ever conducted. And so here we have Dorothy with her little engine all set in place. Bring in all those society had neglected, assuming, of course, they were being supported by the government. Provide the best comfort and care possible, including all the extra sleeping pills and other poisons available. And then... Chief would take care of any residents who needed to check out a little prematurely. Perfect, perfect scheme for Dorothy. Okay, well, in design, it was a perfect little scheme for Dorothy. But I guess on paper, communism looks pretty good, too. Um, if you're a fan of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, you know this fundamental truth. Never trust a wild card. And that's what tenant Betty Palmer was. Betty was not your typical resident who had been living on the streets, 
surviving off of government handouts and all that. She had spent most of her life living on her own, managing her own affairs, and essentially just not being treated like a piece of dirt. She was 77 years old when she found herself in Dorothy's care, and it was only because hospital bills had eaten away at all of her life savings. Shortly, she moved in in 1986. Betty became furious at Dorothy because Dorothy was opening her mail and cashing her government assistance checks. Now, of course, Dorothy said, look, that's how we do things here. That's what I told you when we moved in. And I'm not going to create different rules for different people because that's going to be too confusing for me. And it's going to cause an uprising among those who really, truly need their finances restricted. Betty didn't care. She wouldn't back down. And she continuously argued that she needed to manage her own money. Betty, after these arguments, Betty would often leave the house. And this really concerned Dorothy because she didn't know where she was going or who Betty was complaining to. So she decided that this wild heart had to be discarded one way or another. So one night, under the guise of burying the hatchet, Dorothy invited Betty to her room to talk things over. Dorothy turned on her roguelike charm and just filled Betty full of cocktails. Cocktails laced with sleeping pills. Dorothy promised the moon and stars to Betty. She apologized for the misunderstanding. And Betty left Dorothy's room that night very satisfied. Pretty drunk, too, but satisfied. Apparently, Betty made it to her room, changed into her nightgown, before collapsing on the floor. Dorothy and her loyal assistant chief just kind of happened to be listening on the other side of the door when they heard Betty collapse and then heard no noise afterwards. They went inside. Now, again, Dorothy knew this wild card could be a huge, huge problem for her. So she had to make sure that Betty's body was unidentifiable. So they laid out the plastic sheeting everywhere. And Chief took on the grisly job of removing Betty's hands, Betty's feet, Betty's lower legs. Basically anything that could lead to the body being identified. And of course, this included Betty's head. All of these parts were wrapped in plastic separately and buried in random locations, even Dorothy didn't know where, outside the city limits. Betty's torso was planned to be buried in a flower bed. But there was a problem with this plan. The scorching summer heat had forced many residents of Sacramento to start doing their entertaining at night outside, and Dorothy's neighbors were no exception. When Chief went outside in the backyard to bury the body, he saw the neighbors having a party. Like, all the neighbors. All of them. And it just so happened that several of them were in a perfect spot to see directly into Dorothy's backyard. Chief told Dorothy what was going on, and Dorothy made an executive decision. 
Betty's torso would have to be buried in the front yard. So working together as quickly as they could, Chief and Dorothy dug a shallow grave, dumped the torso into it. And they were very lucky. Almost no cars drove by, and nobody was out for a walk at this time of night. Now, rather than planting flowers over Betty's partial grave, this huge, heavy statue to St. Francis was moved on top of where Betty's torso laid, kind of serving as a marker, and also kind of discouraging people from poking around. At this point, Dorothy knew that she had to take it easy. She had to lay low. She, you know, Betty's murder was a dangerous game she was playing. So for weeks, everything just went on as normal inside the boarding house. No one died mysteriously. No new flower beds were planted. But after several weeks, no one had reported Betty missing. No loved ones were calling Dorothy to check on her. No social workers were interested in Betty. And so Dorothy started to breathe a little bit easier. And she had been kind of collecting Betty's checks just in case something was happening. But once she felt like she was in the clear, she said, okay, I can start cashing these checks again. But she was met with a nasty little surprise. Before her death, Betty apparently had gone to the bank and made a formal request and done the paperwork that her checks could be cashed only by Betty. So when Dorothy shows up, she wasn't phased by the surprise, being the con artist she was. She just said, oh, silly me, I forgot my ID. I'll go get it. I'll be back tomorrow with it. That night, she goes home, she pulls out Betty's old ID, she doctors the crap out of it, and did a convincing enough job with her forgery that it worked. She appeared to be Betty to the bank, and she was able to continue cashing Betty's checks again. Now, like I mentioned earlier, social workers weren't real interested in what happened to Betty. When they would come by just for routine inspections, Betty was suffering from enough health problems and had, in any given month, she had multiple, if not dozens, of doctor's appointments. So when the social workers would come by, Dorothy would say, oh, you missed her. She's got a doctor's appointment and such and such today. You know, you can come back at this time. I think she'll be free then. Well, the social workers are overworked. And they wouldn't come back when Dorothy suggested it would maybe be another month. And again, she could say, I, she's at doctor's appointment. I'm so sorry. And this never raised a red flag. But arguably, Betty's disappearance is the first crack in Dorothy's fortress walls. Dorothy next took down a woman by the name of Leona Carpenter who was recovering from cancer and had essentially been released directly into Dorothy's care straight from the hospital where she had just been through brain surgery to remove a tumor. After, now, Dorothy didn't even give her a room. She prepared a couch in the living area for her and left her there because she suspected that Leona had no family 
to come and check on her. And after a spell, she felt like she was right. So it was she was so confident in this. Not only did she just give her a sofa, but the sheets she had on the sofa underneath them were surrounded by plastic sheeting. So, you know, our evil queen was very prepared for Leona. Um, Leona didn't live very long and ended up being buried in a shallow grave near the nice white picket fence that surrounded the yard. There was a fella who kind of became Betty number two, James Gallup. He was a massive problem for Dorothy. He was one of the residents there, and he just complained all the time about Dorothy hoarding their money. He actually tried to kind of rally the other residents to mutiny, I guess. But much like James, you know, all the residents there are a shell of their former self. They're very sick. They don't have much energy. And really, they're kind of lucky to be alive at all. Dorothy tried her usual tricks on James, but it didn't work. And James kind of figured out on his own that she was spiking his drinks with sleeping pills. And he became very vocal throughout the house about whatever this medication is Dorothy's given me, it ain't my medication. It's something to make me sleepy so I don't complain all the time. Yada, yada, right? Well, within James' story, I kind of lied a little bit. James actually wasn't the problem. He was the distraction. Resident Carol Durning was kind of the silent assassin. She was the one who convinced James and the other residents to get riled up. But she stayed quiet. So she flew under Dorothy's radar. And when things started to get heated between James and Dorothy, Carol just left one day. She was no longer in Dorothy's control. It was shortly after Carol left that Dorothy decided she couldn't stand having James around, causing all this problem. So he quickly became another piece of flower fertilizer. And kind of further widen the cracks in Dorothy's wall. When you couple it with the fact that Carol was now out in the free world. Remember that odor we discussed that neighbors are complaining of? Well, it became a problem for the residents too. Now Dorothy used every excuse she could think of that a rat must have died in the floorboards or the new fertilizers we're using just you know, smell really bad, or these drains have gotten backed up again. Anything she could think of, you know, other than saying it was decomposing bodies, of course. Still, those in her care were not happy about the horrible smell, but the longer they were there, the more they got used to it, and those complaints kind of died down from the long-termers. People who visited, though, would notice the smell. To complicate matters... Dorothy decided this was the time to take care of what he, what she perceived to be a loose end. She invited Chief up to her apartment for one of their regular powwows. However, Chief didn't really catch on how generous Dorothy was being with the alcohol. 
and with her compliments. He eventually kind of found himself lost in this brain fog. And Dorothy became concerned and led him to his bed. And when he laid down, he noticed that it didn't feel right. It felt like there was something stiff and plasticky underneath the sheets. But he was too tired to care. He just needed to sleep. And Dorothy had kind of made the informal declaration that she was no longer willing to trust anyone. Dorothy had concrete poured near the fence in the backyard of her property shortly thereafter, and she lamented to everyone who had listened about how upset she was that Chief had just disappeared in the night. He had been so reliable. He was such a hard worker. Where was Dorothy going to find a replacement handyman of Chief's quality? So while Chief's disappearance impacted Dorothy's operation, it didn't start, it didn't stop her scheming. She still needed people coming and going as quickly as possible to finance her dreams. But without Chief, her ability to dispose of bodies had be extremely limited, and the murder rate kind of dried to a trickle of what it had been. Now, I could not find any reason why she made this decision regarding Chief. The only thing I can imagine is maybe because of his nature, he was just perceived as a bit of a loose cannon. And if she ever accidentally did something to upset him, he would quickly turn on her. All right, back to our story. In October of 1987, Dorothy decided to try a rather aggressive approach. Vera Martin arrived at her boarding home one morning, hoping to secure a room. And she was given one. And as soon as she settled down, Dorothy, you know, wanted to welcome her and brought her some drinks and they chit-chatted. And no one ever saw Vera again. Um, Dorothy had to draft resident Homer Myers to help dig a new grave because she assumed that he was too slow-witted to really grasp why he was doing what he was being asked to do. Little did Dorothy know that this was the end of the innocence and her well-laid plans were about to implode in dramatic fashion. Alvaro Bert Montoya was Dorothy's perfect little lapdog. The poor man suffered from a variety of psychiatric issues. No drug or alcohol problems. He was just, he was like a lost child. He found Dorothy only because of the kindness of a social worker named Judy, who really, really liked Bert and wanted to make sure he wasn't just lost in the system. So she did everything she could to get Bert into Dorothy's boarding home. And when she succeeded, it was like a dream come true for Judy. And frankly, it seemed like a perfect match. Um, you know, again, Dorothy paid for Bert's moving expenses. He moved in in the first part of 1988. Judy visited Bert after a couple of weeks to see how well he had settled in and was just shocked. He was wearing new clothes. He had a whole new wardrobe, in fact. His hair had been cut. He looked really sharp. His beard had been trimmed down and looked very neat and clean. 
Bert was clearly being given special treatment based on the other residents' kind of minor grumblings. He was the only resident allowed in Dorothy's sacred space, the kitchen, to help her prepare meals. This extra attention also meant extra work, such as, say, you know, landscaping work. Uh, one account told a story about di- Bert digging a big hole. And he was so proud he had to show off to the other residents that he could stand in it and spin around. Dorothy said that was where she was going to have a peach tree planted. Judy, again, really interested in Bert and would visit just from time to time to see him. And she was constantly amazed at his progress. When she first met Bert, she could barely communicate with him. I mean, the whole reason his nickname is Bert is because everybody thought his name was Alberto, not Alvaro. But now, under Dorothy's care, she Judy was able to have like real conversations with Bert. And Bert said and Dorothy confirmed that he was taking his medications regularly and he was starting to feel better. You know, this was, again, it's just a miracle to Judy because... Bert was so far gone and he had been through such a hard life. He would go from shelter to shelter where the other residents would recognize his weakness. They would steal from him. They would take advantage of him. And then eventually he'd get kicked out onto the street again when he would complain about what had occurred. And again, he just, he lacked a lot of communication skills and to see him kind of thriving, just, you know, it, it brought tears to Judy's eyes. Now, Judy wasn't officially Bert's social worker. She had just come across him during the course of her normal duties. Bert had his own dedicated social worker. But she was just as astounded, too. In fact, she would bring some of her colleagues on her visits to see Bert just because she was so amazed at what awesome progress had been made. In March of 1988... Dorothy took Bert down to the local Social Security Administration office because no one had ever helped him get signed up for any of the government assistant programs he qualified for. So they went down there and Bert identified Dorothy as his cousin and that she would be the one responsible for taking care of his money. And, you know, before... The Social Security folks would sign off on this. They had Bert evaluated by one of their psychiatrists. That psychiatrist said, yeah, Bert really does need help managing his day-to-day life. So just like that, Dorothy was getting Bert's checks. That's all it took. Come fall, Bert started getting invited up to Dorothy's room at night. Now, he wouldn't stay long because these weren't like the other meetings. And, you know, Dorothy told him it would be improper if he was seen staying too late. But of course, he loved the extra attention because, again, he he's really at a childlike level mentally with all of his problems. But as soon as these visits started, within a week or two, Bert developed this new health issue. He was just exhausted all the time. And he, you know, complained to a social worker and... She, you know, thought about it and talked to some doctors and kind of concluded on her own that, you know, he was suffering from so many mental problems 
and he's finally taking his medication. He's finally in a stable environment. I think the exhaustion is just his body repairing itself from all the damage and all the stress it's been through over the years. And, you know, she had noticed that Bert traditionally was very twitchy and fidgety and just couldn't sit still. It was almost like he had ticks. But when he started making these complaints about being exhausted, by this time, all the twitching and fidgeting and ticks and all had disappeared. So to the social workers, this was just more proof that whatever Dorothy was doing was working. As you can imagine, though, this was our sign that Dorothy was done with Bert. Don't know why. No complaints about him that we're aware of. Um, but she was done with Bert. Now, it may be because in his free time, Bert would go back and reconnect with some of the folks he knew from his time bouncing around treatment facilities. Folks who were nice to him. Um, there was a nurse in particular that he really enjoyed. So he went to go see her one day and he confided, you know, he, he was doing better. She was real proud of course, of how far he had come. His only complaint was he didn't like the new medicine mama had been giving him. That's what he called Dorothy was mama. Well, this raised a red flag with the nurse because so far as she could tell, Bert hadn't had his medications changed. And she was very worried that Dorothy was giving him something that may be causing him harm. Unintentionally, of course. Dorothy clearly had done great things for him. This may just be one of those things where, in an effort to be nice, she had accidentally kind of created a harmful situation for Bert. So the nurse says, Bert, let's go down to the hospital and have you checked out. They go down to the hospital and they run some blood tests and they find all of this all these sleeping pills in his blood. And, you know, they were like, we need to call Dorothy down here for a meeting. So the doctor called her and asked her to come down to talk about Bert. And Dorothy happily went because she figured this was just another chance for her to be praised for all the awesome things she had done for Bert. But when she arrived, she was shocked to be confronted with these allegations that she had been drugging Bert. And things got really tense between her and the doctors and some of the nursing staff. And it was upsetting Bert, obviously. So one of the nurses pulled Bert out of the room. And she took it upon herself to talk to Bert privately. And she said, look, you're doing great with Dorothy. Okay. She's giving you some medicine that's making you sleepy. She probably shouldn't be doing that, but you have to ask yourself, do you want to stay with Dorothy or do you want to go back to some of the treatment places you had been here, been in before? Now, the only places Bert could get into before were essentially these rehab facilities or psychiatric facilities where you were taken care of insofar as they gave you a cot in a recreation room and you got to sleep there and that was it you know they would coordinate trips to hospitals or doctors visits or whatnot for you but you were on your own and like we discussed Bert was often taken advantage of by other residents and all that 
And so he he reluctantly agreed to stay with Mama. And the nurse said, okay, if you're going to do that, you need to follow her rules and do what she says because I really believe she has your best interests at heart. Even if you don't like taking the medicine, take the medicine. Well, Bert, you know, was led back into the room and he made his declaration that he would like to stay with Dorothy. And so that kind of ended the conversation. Um, Dorothy, you know, grabbed Bert's hand, smiled down sweetly at him, and then looked at the rest of the staff and gave a smug smile. And they walked out. They got home and Dorothy immediately took Bert up to her room and she began kind of force feeding him sleeping pills. Because the nurse had just told Bert, you know, go do what Dorothy says, take the drugs she wants you to. Bert didn't fight this. He took the pills grudgingly, but he took the pills. He soon began to grow groggy and sleepy. And Dorothy said, come to my bed and rest. And he wanted to object because he had been taught that that was an, you know, an improper thing in polite society to, for a man to lay down in another woman's bed. But by this point, he couldn't feel his jaw or his lips or his tongue. He couldn't really form words at all. Apparently, when he got onto the bed, the top layer was covered in plastic sheeting. And he fell asleep. The next day, that peach tree we had talked about earlier was delivered. So Dorothy gathered up several residents to help get the tree planted. And a couple of them said, hey, you know, where's Bert? This is the holy dog you were so excited about. I thought he'd want to be here to plant the tree. Dorothy kind of shrugged off answering for a bit, but then she broke down. Bert snuck away in the middle of the night, she claimed. She was so heartbroken over being abandoned by him. Judy stopped by a couple days later to check on Bert. And Dorothy told Judy that Bert was sick and resting. Nothing serious, just a bad cold. But, you know, it's probably best not to visit with Bert right now. Judy, something about that answer just struck Judy wrong. And so she called Bert's designated social worker and said, hey, will you check on Bert? I just have a bad feeling about what's going on there. Meanwhile, Judy herself continuously called the house, like literally every day, just to try to speak with Bert. But there was always some reason why Bert couldn't come to the phone. Meanwhile, the social workers kind of doing the same thing, not as aggressively. But Dorothy knew she had to get these people off her back. So she concocted a lie for Judy and said, Bert, you know, look, he recovered from his illness and then he just disappeared. He fled into the night. Well, Judy knew this couldn't be true. So she was at Dorothy's door the very next morning. Dorothy, you know, sat down with Judy and said, look, Bert recovered from his illness. But while he was down with his illness, He was really introspective, and he decided that he couldn't live the rest of his life without making amends with his family, specifically his sister. And he decided he wanted to go to Mexico to make amends with her. I told him not to do it, but Bert didn't listen to me, and he snuck out in the middle of the night, and I think that's where he went. 
Now, the problem was Dorothy was talking to the one person in the world who knew Bert best. And Judy knew that Bert had no family in Mexico. But Judy left without confronting Dorothy. Instead, she got back home and immediately called Bert's social worker to pass on what happened. And this is when the social worker really began to step up efforts to hound Dorothy. And eventually Dorothy had one of her day workers, who was from Mexico, call the social worker to say Bert was with him. Well, who was he? He said he was Bert's new brother-in-law. Bert's sister had recently been married, and the pair decided to take Bert in because they missed him. They saw he was in rough shape, and they knew that being with family was the best way for him to recover. Social worker believed 0% of this phone call. couple reasons why. First of all, nobody in Bert's family called him Bert. They called him Alvaro. Again, the name Bert was a nickname that came from folks not knowing his real name. And this professional voice actor Dorothy had hired off the streets, he couldn't remember the pseudonym he was supposed to be using, so he kept changing his name unintentionally during the phone call. So after this little incident, this is when the social workers became suspicious of what Dorothy was up to. And she did a little investigation, and in, a, in an amazingly short amount of time, the social worker found the man who was pretending to be Bert's brother-in-law on the phone. And she confirmed that he was a day laborer that regularly did work for Dorothy. At this point, the social worker said, you know, something's up here. I'm getting the police involved. The call went to Detective John Cabrera who just happened to be the only member of the Sacramento Police Department who had ever worked on a case involving a serial killer. He heard the social worker's story, listened to her concerns, and he made immediate plans to interview Dorothy and all the residents of the boarding house. So he goes out there a couple days later, and you know he had scheduled this with Dorothy ahead of time, because he thought there's no way you can just pop in and surprise, you know, a facility like this with such a request. So when he gets there, Dorothy has set a scene. She is putting on a show, Broadway level performance here. Okay. All the residents are out of their room. They're all in the living area. They're listening to music. They're reading books. They're playing cards. A meal's being prepared, so it smells really good. And when the detective spoke to the residents, they all told the same story about Bert's departure. Now, Dorothy had taken the time to teach everybody the story and force them to memorize it along with many, many details in case the police asked about such things. And there was an unstated understanding that folks who didn't toe the line may be in trouble. So, Detective Cabrera sits down and interviews everyone in the house. Everyone has the same story about Bert. You know, a lot of them stumble through it, sometimes mixing up details, 
But by and large, her stories were consistent enough that Detective Cabrera really couldn't use any of the statements to increase his efforts. Until the last interview. A resident by the name of John Sharp told Bert's story, just like everyone else. Towards the end of telling the tale, he began singing Dorothy's praises at an unusually high volume, almost as if he expected someone to be listening at the door. When he was done, he stood up and he shook the detective's hand and left. The detective thanked Dorothy for her time and then went out to his vehicle. And when he got to his vehicle, he unraveled a small sheet of paper that John had slipped to him when they shook hands. It read only, quote, she is making us lie for her. Well, Cabrera was shocked, angered, and felt a little outsmarted. So he decided he was going to stake out the house for a bit on his own. And a couple hours later, he just happened to see Mr. Sharp leaving the residence on foot. So he gets a couple blocks before Detective Cabrera pulls up next to him and says, hey, you want to ride? So Sharp gets in and Cabrera says, you look hungry. You want a bite to eat? They go to a local diner and have a nice conversation. And during this conversation, Sharp told his story. Now it was disjointed and Cabrera kind of had to piece it together later, but it was very suspicious. You know, holes were being dug in the basement in the backyard. Residents were suddenly turning ill before vanishing. There was this weird smell that surrounded the house. There were always some excuse why a resident disappeared in the night without saying goodbye. You know, Dorothy was keeping everybody's checks. Nothing alone meant anything criminal was afoot. But when you laid it all out, it created an outline of something that was going on. Nobody knew what exactly, but Detective Cabrera saw that outline and it bothered him. He knew there was something in there they didn't like. So then he decided that it was worth the effort to dig into Dorothy's past. And with that, he learned of her colorful criminal history. He was most concerned about the druggings and the robberies she had been involved in. He also found that court order that prohibited Dorothy from operating a boarding house. Again, nothing solid to go on, but Detective Cabrera was getting that feeling in his gut. Something bad is here. Now, he didn't have enough for a search warrant, in his opinion. But Detective Cabrera decided to take a gamble. You know, Dorothy put on this face that she was here to please. She was a sweet, accommodating woman, would do anything to help anyone, right? So he decided to show up at her house a few days later with a squad of patrolmen and say, and ask for permission to search the house because of the concerns of the social worker. And Dorothy happily agreed. Now, she hovered very, very closely as they went through Bert's room. They also went through her apartment. And, of course, she's right there the whole time. And really, nothing was found that was odd other than Dorothy's 
pretty impressive library on drugs with several pages being dog-eared to sleeping medications. Doubling down on his bet, Detective Cabrera, before they left, said, Would you mind if we poked around in the backyard? Dorothy was so committed to seeming helpful that not only did she say that was fine, she gave them shovels and other tools so they could dig around as they wanted to. Now, Detective Cabrera made the decision that they would start poking around near that newly planted peach tree. They figured if Bert was buried anywhere, that was the latest sign of activity in the backyard. He's probably there. So they dug around and they found plastic bags of garbage underneath the tree. Now, Dorothy had warned them about this before. She said, look, I don't know if I'm breaking any laws. And if I am, I apologize. But we produce too much trash here to wait on the garbage service to take it all. So sometimes when I can't find somebody to take the garbage to the dump, we'll just bury it. So they weren't surprised to find the garbage bag. There was nothing suspicious in the garbage bags. The only odd things they found were pieces of leather and beef jerky. And again, but again, this was all like Dorothy claimed it would be. Now, unfortunately, the roots had grown around most of the area that Detective Cabrera wanted to search. And the shovels they had weren't really strong enough to move them. So in frustration, the detective leapt down into a hole himself and tried to move the most problematic root with his bare hands. And, you know, he jerked and he yanked and finally, with a great heave, it gave way. And when it kind of snapped apart, something was left in Detective Cabrera's hand, a shin bone. Actually, that root that was giving them problems was not a root. It was a human leg. And he had ripped the shin bone off from the leg before realizing what he was doing. Detective Cabrera, needless to say, jumped out of that pit like it was full of snakes. And I hate to say this, but the leather and jerky in the garbage bags were not leather and jerky. You know what it was. So Detective Cabrera finds a body at sweet old Dorothy's place. But amazingly, he does not arrest her. Why? Why would he not arrest her at this point? Well, Bird had only been missing a few weeks, yet this body clearly had been in the earth for a long time. It was possible the body was there even before Dorothy bought the home. And if he was going to bring the full criminal justice system down on Dorothy... He wanted to have all his ducks in a row. Now, at this point, he was certain he had enough information to obtain a search warrant, and he got one easily. So the next day, which was a Saturday, he went back out there. He was worried about being able to convince enough people to join him. But when word got around the station of what was going down, he had tons of volunteers to go with them. Forensics teams, detectives, patrol officers... The captain even signed off on them renting a backhoe to help dig around the property. 
Forensic experts started with the body that had been found and determined it couldn't be Burt's because it was a woman's. It was later determined to be Leona Carpenter's body. She was the old woman recovering from brain surgery whose sofa bed included plastic sheeting, if you recall. Now, while this was going on, Dorothy made a bold play of her own. She dressed in one of her nicer outfits. She brought a umbrella outside with her because it was drizzling. And she had her purse, which contained over $4,000 in cash. She walked straight into the backyard, walking around the police officers, and went straight to Detective Cabrera. She asked if she was under arrest, and he said no. She said, is it okay if I go get some coffee? Watching y'all dig up all the work I put in the backyard is really upsetting for me. And Detective Cabrera said, no, that's fine. In fact, let, let me drive you so you don't have to walk. So she took him up on the offer. And she requested to be taken to a hotel that was just a few blocks away, which he did. He dropped her off and she went inside and he returned back to the, the house. Well, she stood at a window and watched him go away. And as soon as he was out of sight, Dorothy called a taxi and decided to go to a local dive bar. She had a few drinks for some courage and decided that if she was ever going to get out of this, she had to make a run for it right now. So using her criminal training, she takes a taxi over to the airport. And she buys a plane ticket to Los Angeles in cash. Then she takes a taxi to the local bus station. And there buys another ticket via bus for Los Angeles. She boarded the bus and began her life as a fugitive. Now, why on earth would she buy that plane ticket to Los Angeles and not use it? It's because of a story another detective had once told her that police had a way to tell if a plane ticket had been used. If she had an unused plane ticket in her name to Los Angeles, that would be a telltale sign that she was trying to throw the police off her scent. And so the police would know that she could be anywhere but they were almost certain she would not be in Los Angeles. When Detective Cabrera returned to the backyard, another body had been found. By the end of the day, seven corpses had been uncovered. Sweet lapdog Bert, the Dorothy who, who suffered from night terrors, quiet recluse Benjamin, wild card Betty, can't see cancer and brain surgery survivor Leona, troublemaker James, and Vera, the one who didn't last 24 hours, were all found. Creepily, Vera's watch was still ticking when they dug her up. They were all sewn up in these plastic cocoons, just like the John Doe from several years ago. Remember Everett? There was no doubt now to Detective Cabrera, who was responsible for these murders. Inside, police found a list of all the people Dorothy was receiving checks on behalf of, and that list was so much longer than the number of residents 
or the number of dead bodies. But this list gave the police kind of a roster of people to begin searching for. Dorothy's room proved to be an unusual enigma. It was pristine. It was like a furniture showroom, okay? Yet all the evidence they had gathered suggested this is where the bulk of the murders take place. And it was here, too, that that odd odor everybody had been smelling was the strongest. One of the patrol officers suggested pulling up the carpet, and wouldn't you know it, underneath the carpet were several blood stains that Dorothy had never cleaned up. She merely tried to cover them up. It was in this moment that Detective Cabrera realized, with great horror, he had given Dorothy a ride away from the crime scene. Patrols were instantly dispatched to look for Dorothy all over Sacramento, but their efforts were fruitless. Eventually, the search was widened, and they were sending material to news stations and media outlets from the Pacific Northwest all the way down into northern Mexico. The television was showing her pictures multiple times a day. She was on the cover of every newspaper. But in L.A., with it being such a busy city, no one really noticed, especially because she was smart enough to kind of live on the seedier side of town. But Dorothy did not like living this way. She was determined she had to find a new house, which meant she went back to her old routine. She spent most of her nights flirting with older men, looking for a suitable target. And after several days, she found one. Charles Wilgus. He seemed perfect. He was kind. He was generous. He actually saw the condition she was in and went and paid to have her shoes fixed. But Charles wasn't stupid. He noticed Dorothy asked a lot more questions about his house than about him. And when she tried to invite herself over to see his house, he refused but said they'd meet up the next day and he'd help her buy a new outfit. She had given him some story about her luggage being lost um, and you know, just not being able to, with her luggage being lost, all her money, all her credit cards were gone. And so she was kind of living like a vagrant on the streets until the airline could find her stuff. And he believed that, but he just was cautious with her. He was very smart with her. So again, they left with him saying, I'll meet you tomorrow. We'll buy you a few outfits to get you through this rough time. Well, that night, Charles just happened to be watching the news when they flashed a picture of Dorothy up on the screen. Was this the woman he had just met? Was this Donna, which was the name she was going by now? Now, Charles felt really, really uncomfortable unleashing the police on this woman just on a hunch. So he called that local news station instead. It was the local CBS affiliate. And the operator sent him to one of the editors. And he explained the situation to him. And the editor said, I'm going to be at your house bright and early first thing in the morning with all of the material the police sent to us. So you can help us figure out if this really was Dorothy. And sure enough, that dude shows up at the crack of dawn. 
Charles looks at all the pictures and the documents and quickly becomes certain that Donna was really Dorothy. So that same morning, Donna, I mean, Dorothy, was awakened at her hotel room by a hammering on her door. When she answered it, there was just an absolute mob of reporters and photographers and um, cameramen and one police officer. She was just dumbstruck. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to say. The officer just calmly walked in and asked to see her ID. She, in a haze, gave it to him. It showed that she was Dorothy, and he immediately took her into custody. Dorothy was put on a charter flight back to Sacramento. The flight was paid for by that local CBS affiliate. When she landed, she was met on the runway by several Sacramento police officers. She was taken to court and arraigned. But the court refused to set any bail based on her charges and on her escape attempt. Now, the police spent the next several months gathering evidence. Meanwhile, the entire world, including the prison population, was aware of what Dorothy was charged with and came to develop this opinion that she was a true, true monster. She found no friends in prison. No one with which to share the tall tales she had made up about her life. She had two attorneys appointed to represent her. And after meeting with her, they decided there was no way they could let this woman on the stand because she couldn't answer any question without making up a lie. There was no straight answers from her. She always wanted to weave these tall tales she had made up about her life into everything. So they decided that their best bet would be to build the defense around character witnesses, hoping to force the jury to be unable to bring themselves to put such a grandmother-licky woman who had done so much good for the community into jail. Now, the prosecution had a ton of evidence, and they could have charged Dorothy with probably hundreds of charges. But they said, let's be smart about this, okay? Let's make things as easy for the jury as possible while still getting the maximum benefit we could. They decided to toss out any charges based on theft or fraud because they were concerned about having to lay out the financial transactions to the jury. They thought that would get confusing and frankly boring. So they focused only on the murder charges. Formerly, there were nine that were brought. Detectives had evidence to potentially bring another six murder charges, but prosecutors felt like those cases weren't as well developed as the nine they decided to go forward with. Plus, there was another 10 former residents who they could not account for in any way, shape, or fashion. Now, the trial was kind of crazy in a way. The pre-trial hearings began in April of 1990, and those alone lasted for weeks. Typically, a pre-trial hearing lasts 20 minutes to an hour. <laughs> but here, there were so many issues to be dealt with before the trial could start, such as whether this was even the proper venue for trial, whether 
it was a fair venue for the trial based on all the crazy media coverage had been going on. And there was also an issue of, you know, is Dorothy mentally able to assist in her defense? Once all that was sorted out, and one thing the defense did win on is the venue was changed because the judge determined there had just been too much media coverage in Sacramento of this case. But once everything had been figured out, it was sent to a new court, and shortly thereafter, they decided to start jury selection. And this was a nightmare for everybody, because... Everybody knew about this case. And you can't have a juror sit on a case who says, oh, yeah, I've read all about this case in the news, or I see these reports every night. It, incre- you know, it raises the risk that they've got a predetermined opinion of whether or not Dorothy was guilty or innocent. And so they had to find enough people to fill a jury that were essentially out of the loop on this case. And it took a long, long time. Because of all these pretrial issues, because of the transfer of venue, because of the difficulties in finding a jury, even though the pretrial hearing started in April of 1990, the trial itself did not begin until February 9th, 1993, almost three full years later. 153 witnesses were called, including Carol, who had snuck out of the house, remember? And there were 3,500 pages of documentary evidence introduced. This, combined with various other just delays that come up during a trial, ended up causing Dorothy's trial to be the longest-lasting trial in California history at that point in time. So again, it started on February 9th of 93. The jury got the case on July 15th. They deliberated until August 2nd when they announced to the judge they were deadlocked at 11 to 1. Just like that great movie, 12 Angry Men. But the judge said, look, you gotta keep at it. On August 26th, After having this case for, what, roughly six weeks, the jury informed the court it had reached a partial verdict. While they remained deadlocked on six of the nine charges, and the votes had swung from 11-1 to 7-5, they were unanimous in finding Dorothy guilty on three of the murders. Two for first-degree murder, one for second-degree. The judge accepted this, declared a mistrial on the other six murder charges. And in the sentencing on the three guilty charges, sentenced Dorothy to life without parole. That was the minimum he could charge her with, and the maximum. (laughs) So once those three verdicts came in, she got the maximum penalty. The state decided not to retry the other six murder charges because there was no reason to. They couldn't get a better sentence than what they had received. So Dorothy, now 64, was sent to prison in Chowchilla, 
where she would remain there for the rest of her days. After the sensationalism of the trial died down, and after Dorothy had kind of shown what sort of inmate she would be, she did become a bit of a celebrity in jail. While she continued to deny that she ever killed anyone, she enjoyed the attention she was receiving. She also strangely continued to act like she was running a boarding house. And by that, I mean she was in a cell with seven other women. But even into her 80s, every morning she would wake up, she would clean the cell by herself, she would gather everybody's clothes and do a wash. When she was able to, she would cook a Mexican dish using whatever supplies she had available. And of course, her cellmates adored her and loved the day she's cooked. They would chip in any way they could to help defray the costs she was incurring. And, you know, the guards even commented on her cooking and considered her to be a bit of a model inmate and a good influence on the other female prisoners. As time passed, she again took on the role of advising many of the younger inmates, not just about crime now, but about life in general. And on March 27th, 2011, at the age of 82, Dorothy died of natural causes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the very long, very sordid tale of Dorothy Gray. I've subjected you to so much, but I still got to analyze this case, right? There's some bits I got to point out. I have to say Dorothy was a very clever woman. Her greed is what did her in, as well as her refusal to trust anyone. If she had just let Bert live, there's a good chance she never gets caught. I never really grasped the reason why she decided Bert had to die other than maybe she was so despondent over his decision to complain to a third party about the medication he was receiving that she couldn't let that stand. But that was easily the stupidest decision in her entire criminal career. I also find it to be such a remarkably simple scheme to pull off and how easily it could be done in, even in today's world. You focus on the ultimate problem patients with serious mental ish health issues, serious substance abuse issues. You include in your housing agreement that part of the deal is any checks and money they received, you're going to hold in trust for them so they can't run wild pursuing their vices, and you open up a separate bank account to be used as this trust account. Then all you'd have to do is keep fake records about the money that has, that has gone in and out, and you'll probably never get caught as you bleed these people dry. You, you can't do it all at once. You have to do it in baby steps. You know, If Bob wants to go out shopping, you give him $20, but in the ledger, you note you gave him 40 and you pocket the other 20 The other expenses that crop up, you, you know, you can charge to the inmates, but just keep in your pocket. You can claim that, you know, one of them broke a window, you had to have it replaced. 
And in your agreement, you can say any damage you're going to cause, I'm going to charge you for. And the best part of all, if you're truly, you know, heartless, psychotic, and without a conscience, is with the diminished capacity of these patients, most are going to be inclined to trust your records over the complaint of somebody who struggles with serious substance abuse or mental health problems. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's how the world works. Dorothy would be a free woman up until the time she died if she had followed through on that original plan to move to Mexico. She could have done her scheme in Mexico City or wherever, used some of the money to grease the right palms in government, and she would have never had to worry about police interfering in her business. I don't say that as some sort of fairy tale I've con concocted. I just say that from experience and dealing with the the Mexican bureaucracy. Um, I, I, it's very clear to me that if I wanted to become a citizen of Mexico, all I would need to do is travel down to Mexico to the appropriate office, give the clerk $20, and he would sign uh, an affidavit claiming that I had lived in Mexico for the requisite period of time and completed all the other prerequisites required to become a citizen. That's how it works down there. That's how it always... I, I actually had a buddy who was traveling through Mexico, and it's very common for people to get pulled over, and the cops are only looking to get bribed. They don't want to write a ticket. They don't want to fool with that. And my buddy had been traveling through there for a while and he had paid several cops off and he was so tired of doing it late one night that when the cop came to his door and he spoke fluent Spanish, he said, look, I'm tired of being pulled over. I'm out of cash. You're the third cop to hit me. I've got a box of jeans. Do you want those? And so <laughs> he had blue jeans he was getting rid of and he used that to bribe an officer. Um, Gotta love Mexico. Now, going back to the prosecution, um, I find it interesting that the prosecutors decided to charge Dorothy with only the nine murders and none of the theft or fraud charges. But I think this was a very smart decision. Lots of prosecutors think that piling on as many charges as possible is the best approach. And from my experience, I disagree. Because... Well, their thinking is, if we hit them with 500 crimes, the jury has to know what a dirty SOB this is, right? But from a defense perspective, you use that to your advantage. You pick out the weakest charges, the ones you know they're going to have the hardest time proving. And when it's your turn to cross-examine or put on any evidence, you start poking holes in those theories. And you start showing how your client you know, didn't cash this check like they're saying. Your client wasn't at this location when they said a robbery occurred. Those sorts of little things. You don't attack all the charges. You just go after the weaker ones. <clears throat> but you do that with the ultimate goal of being able to show the jury that your client's being railroaded by the prosecution. And if you've poked enough holes even if it's such as on these outlier crimes, right? It does start raising some doubts in some jurors' minds. 
And some, especially those who are not very pro-police, are going to say, they're just jacking up charges on this poor man or this poor woman. Especially when you've got a client like Dorothy who just looks like the sweetest little grandma sitting there. I mean, that's a huge positive in the defense's case when the prosecution is piling on charges. But here, the prosecution dodged that problem altogether because they chose to bring only the strongest cases. And since they're the strongest cases, the defense cannot poke holes in them as easily as they could if they were facing hundreds of charges. Now, personally, I don't love how the defense handled this case. It may have been the best option. I certainly agree with their decision to not let Dorothy on the stand. God knows what that woman would have said on the stand and it would have opened the door for the prosecution to bring in all the crazy lies she had told during the course of her life as an effort to impeach her testimony and her credibility, okay? But calling character witnesses as your primary form of defense is very, very risky, in my opinion. You are essentially making a Wizard of Oz argument, okay? Don't look at the bad things behind the curtain. Look at the good things I've done over here. It works with some jurors. I think it's a very dicey, dicey way to go. But having said that, they got her off on six of the nine charges, so they did an excellent job in this approach. Now, I'm going to say, of course, I don't have what the defense attorneys had when they evaluated this case. I only have the materials able to dig up on my own. But here's how I would have defended Dorothy. Okay, I would take the approach that the residents are to blame. They came and went as they pleased. They were hard to keep track of. Dorothy had, I don't know what the number really is, let's say 50 to 75, rotate through her house each and every year. She hired day laborers to help her around the house. Most of them had a criminal record, but, you know, Dorothy loved the forgotten people of the world. She was out to help all these people off the streets. So that's not something that would have bothered her at the time. She knew that sometimes the residents and the laborers would get into arguments. They, you know, they were always the ones digging holes. When the police came to her backyard to dig it up to look for bodies, Dorothy was scared because she had been mistreated by the system before, in her mind. And I would highlight the fact that the police did not arrest her when the first body was found because it wasn't the man they were looking for, right? In fact, not only did they not arrest her, Detective Cabrera even drove Dorothy away from the crime scene because it was upsetting her. Now, how do you tell a story like this without Dorothy's testimony? How do you put these words in her mouth? You have to do it through the questions you ask. You know, Detective, did you consider that Dorothy may have run from you because she had been wrongly imprisoned once? Now, this doesn't count as evidence. What an attorney says is never evidence, but it damn sure gets the idea before the jury. 
and that's what you have to do as a defense attorney, whatever it takes. Now, where this type of defense would fall apart, most likely, is in the fact that those who went missing typically were seen visiting Dorothy's room shortly before their disappearance. And those pesky little blood stains under the carpet, right? Those are the clear weak points in this defense. So you have to turn the story around on the police. So first, I would do a line of questioning about, you know, okay, so you said you found this blood under the carpet. And in her room, she's got a bed. She's got a dresser. She's got a desk, right? She's got this heavy furniture. So are you really suggesting that this frail old woman moved the bed by herself, moved the dresser by herself, got rid of all the other furniture, then ripped out the old carpet and replaced the new carpet and reset the room without anyone helping? And I suspect the natural response would be, well, she must have had someone do it for her. Then you cut your line of questioning into, well, then who helped her? And the police are going to say, we don't know, blah, blah, blah. So wait, 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 wait. You've got evidence of murders taking place. You've got a frail old woman who you're saying could not have done this on her own, but you can't tell us who actually did it. Instead, we're supposed to put all the blame on this old woman. That's how you want to tell this story? You're telling us there's another killer out there and we're here dealing with this old woman? Then I would move the questions to the condition of the house. How clean was it? Didn't she keep a nice house? Wasn't it in immaculate condition? Is that fair to say? Okay. Well, if she spent all her time cleaning and she made sure the residents had a nice living area, why would she go through all the trouble of moving her furniture and ripping up her carpet, whether by herself or with these mysterious other killers you can't name, and then just leave the blood on the floor? Is that consistent with the way she kept her house? And plus, why would there be blood on the floor? Did you find any bodies that suggested there would be blood on the floor? Isn't it true that all seven corpses you found died due to sleeping pills? Where did that blood come from? Now, of course, we all know where the blood came from. It came from when they cut up Betty, right? But considering the bodies were all neatly wrapped in this plastic cocoon and every cause of death is poisoning, explain how blood got on her floor. Aren't we assuming a lot here just to secure a conviction? Shouldn't we maybe know who else was involved in these alleged murders? Shouldn't we maybe figure out how blood got on the floor? of her room, her immaculate room, without being cleaned up. Now, to the extent that they may try to make a big deal about um, residents visiting Dorothy's room and then not being seen again, I do think that's a little bit easier to play off. You know, 
surely the government is not claiming that everybody who set foot in Dorothy's room died. That would be ridiculous. How many people went up there? Every resident visited at some point in time, right? So isn't it possible? Isn't it possible? That's all I'm asking for here, detective. Isn't it possible that the residents who are saying that everybody who went upstairs died are only saying that because they remember the people who went missing also happened to visit Dorothy's room at some point in time. And that kind of boxes him in a little bit. And then you say, did you ask them when they last saw these people go up there? If they did, you deal with that answer however you could. If they don't, that's the best answer you can get from a defense perspective. You don't know the answer to that. You don't know when the last time Bert went up to Dorothy's room was. So are we just sitting here today listening to y'all tell a story where you are taking the facts and fitting them to the narrative that you wanted rather than listening to the story the facts give us? And you have to point out, just in looking at this case, the fact that there was one holdout in that jury room would give any defense attorney so much hope. So in this situation, when you've got like an 11-1 jury that claims to be deadlocked, and again, I can only pull from my experience. I don't know what they do in every state and every jurisdiction, but the judge will typically ask, will call the attorneys into his chambers or they'll meet in the courtroom. And the judge will say, do you want me to give the dynamite charge? The dynamite charge is where the judge brings the jurors back into the courtroom and basically explains to them in a very eloquent way, the state has spent a lot of money on this case. We've all spent a lot of time working on this. Lots of witnesses have come to testify to the disruption of their life. There's lots of victims' families waiting to hear what's going to be the resolution of this case. The defendant's family is likewise waiting to hear what's going to happen. We need you as a jury to reach a verdict. That is your job here, and we're not going to let you go until you've done that. Now, the reason it's called a dynamite charge is that puts a lot of pressure on each member of the jury to decide whether or not they want to stick to their guns. Personally, I have never agreed to a dynamite charge because I want that monkey wrench to stay there <laughs> as much as possible. Even if I knew it was 11-1 in my client's favor, I'd want that monkey wrench to stay there to hold up proceedings because there's always the risk. Oh, I literally have had a case where they were deadlocked 11 to 1 in my client's favor and ultimately reached a compromised verdict where they found my client who was charged with murder guilty of um, assault just as a way to end the deadlock. And so I always oppose the dynamite charge. In my experience, a judge won't give the dynamite charge unless both sides agree to it. And if that one holdout can keep holding out and be the ultimate monkey wrench, eventually the court's going to say, okay, we've got a mistrial. 
because they are not keen to keep jurors for months. You know, they don't want, especially if you're in a jurisdiction where judges are elected, they do not want to have voters locked up arguing over the same stuff for weeks. They want them to get back to their normal lives as quickly as possible. So you keep that deadlock, you get the judge to declare a mistrial, then the prosecution has to deal with the decision of, do we try this case again? And in my experience, again, more often than not, they do not want to try it again because you've had 153 witnesses testify in Dorothy's case here, right? How many of those were shooken up by the process? How many of those were naive walking in and didn't realize what they were going to face? How many of those have been rattled by cross-examination? And you're going to find that of those 153 witnesses, if you do a second trial, it's going to be more like 100 or 110 show back up. Now, granted, I've never been in a criminal case where you've had that many witnesses. You know, 8 or 10 is really considered a lot. But those are all necessary witnesses that the prosecution needs to prove their case. And so losing two or three of those witnesses is just is brutal. It, it just absolutely undercuts their ability to prove any sort of crime occurred. And so that's how I would handle it. Those are the decisions I would have made. But having said all this, I would consider Dorothy's defense to be nothing more than a long shot. And again, I do want to praise her attorneys. They they won six of the nine battles. It's just a shame that they were in a situation where losing just once cost them the war. I'm saying all this as a defense attorney, too. I don't want to leave the impression that I think it stinks that she went to jail. I'm analyzing it as an academic exercise. Um, and again, very impressed she did not get nine guilty verdicts. I, I think most attorneys, appointed attorneys especially, would not have cared as much. Now, Dorothy's crimes have led to her story being the focus of a lot of books, a lot of true crime shows, and other media like podcasts. I think my favorite thing that I found she was involved with was she helped co-author a cooking book with Shane Bugby entitled Cooking with a Serial Killer. You get 50 of Dorothy's favorite recipes, plus a pretty lengthy interview with her, as well as some of Dorothy's prison art if you get the book. And you can find the book on Amazon. I tell you what, if you've lasted into this episode this long, I'll buy you a copy of that dang book. No, no, wait, that's not. Let's make this fun. I want to do everything fun. I don't want to just hand you stuff, listeners. I love y'all, but I don't just want to hand. I want y'all to do a little bit of work here. So here's what we're going to do. My little guy, Joe, loves dinosaurs. So you email me your best dinosaur drawing that I can share with my littlest one. And if Amazon will ship the book to you, I'll buy it and ship it to you. First three, 
excuse me, first three of y'all that follow these rules and include your shipping information too. I forgot to mention that. Send me a dinosaur drawing via email with your shipping address. If Amazon will ship it to you, the first three of y'all that fit these conditions get a free copy of that book. It has to be amazing. You get her recipes and her artwork and an interview with her. I wish I could have read the book before doing this episode, but I'm not a cook. I don't know if I want to see her artwork, and I probably wouldn't believe most of what she had to say in the interview. But that's just neat to have on your bookshelf. Now, if you happen to live in or near Sacramento, or you will be in the area sometime soon, the boarding house is located at 1426 F Street. Now, at one time, the city gave tours of the house, but I don't know if they still do that. The most recent information I could find on it was from 2013, and this house has been sold at least once since then. But if nothing else, you can snap a selfie with this boarding house of doom if you're in the area. There's also an episode of Ghost Adventures who did an investigation at the house because there's claims that the residents and Dorothy herself even haunt the house. I don't care for those shows, so I didn't watch it. But if you're down with it, check out the episode. You'll get to see the inside of the house. Um, And, you know, again, like I said, there's probably a dozen or more other programs that have discussed this crime to varying degree. I just know Ghost Adventures, since they're doing some sort of investigation, will be in the house, and you'll probably get the most out of that. Oh, man. Okay. I'm whooped. Um, So I'm done talking. Uh, We're going to put a bow on this one with a palate cleanser. This joke comes from my youngest that I just mentioned, and he insisted that I include it in my next episode. So this is me being a good dad, okay? Why did the dinosaur get arrested for walking down the street? I told you he loves dinosaurs, so the joke, of course, is about dinosaurs. Why did the dinosaur get arrested for walking down the street? Because he was walking through a no stomping zone. Ta-da! Six-year-olds find the most interesting jokes to tell. Okay. Well, if you enjoy our work, and believe me, this one was work, (laughs) please leave us a kind review. Don't make fun of my voice. That's, That's not helpful. Look, if you got a bad review, if you think I'm doing something wrong, you can let me know that too. I mean, I'd prefer you do it by email, but if you want to leave us a bad review, at least say what we're doing badly, okay? Uh, but we'd prefer, you know, the five-star review sort because um, ego. Share us with your friends so they can experience the fun that we go through every week. You can subscribe to the podcast if for some crazy reason you have not already done that. We have a Facebook group, Instagram, Twitter, if you care about any of that. Oh, and again, don't forget to check out Ryan Green's book, Buried Beneath the Boarding House, to learn more about this case. Ryan Green's written a whole bunch of true crime books. And based on this one, this is the only one I've read by him, but based on this one, he's pretty good at it. And he does a pretty good job researching it, so... Check out his work. I I would strongly encourage you to do that, even if it's not on this case, just because he seems like a good author and a good researcher, and I think you'll learn a lot. It's a great read. So, you kids, keep having a kick-butt day. I will see you next time, if you're lucky. Brad out. 
Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.